I'm Monsignor Bill Parent, pastor of St. Elizabeth Church, and you're listening to the St. Elizabeth Church podcast. This episode is one of five talks from our 2022 Lenten series entitled The Radical Call of Laudato Si. Laudato Si is Pope Francis's 2015 encyclical letter on the environment. Here is the fourth talk of this series by Deacon Mark Aislin, recorded live on Tuesday, March 29th. Please rise. The Lord be with you. A reading from the Holy Gospel according to Luke. Jesus took Peter, John, and James and went up the mountain to pray. While he was praying, his face changed in appearance and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were conversing with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his exodus that he was going to accomplish in Jerusalem. Peter and his companions had been overcome by sleep but becoming fully awake, they saw his glory and two men standing with him. As they were about to part from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. But he did not know what he was saying. While he was still speaking, a cloud came and cast a shadow over them and they became frightened when they entered the cloud. Then from the cloud came a voice that said, This is my chosen son. Listen to him. After the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. They fell silent and did not at that time tell anyone what they had seen. The Gospel of the Lord. So good evening and welcome to the fourth uh, talk of our Lenten series on the Radical Call of Laudato Si. This evening's topic is the gift of the environment. And yes, Laudato Si is about the environment and we've been talking about it for the last three weeks. So what more could the deacon say what we're about to see? What I'd like to do is lead you on a journey to talk about the environment in the lens of the establishment of a relationship with God, with one another, and with the environment, and how that was broken and then reconciled in the cross, and what that means for us on our Lenten conversion journey. Pope Francis defines the environment in section 139 of Laudato Si. It seems kind of late, but it's, it's uh, in, well into Laudato Si when he t talks about it in terms of relationship. He says that the environment is, quote, a relationship existing between nature and the society which lives in it. That word relationship is central to what I want to focus on this evening because ultimately relationship brings everything together. God, God's people, and the world we live in. Society is an interesting word choice, too, 
because it implies something beyond people as biological entities to encompass a social system, a community that is organized in some fashion. In other words, society refers to people who are in relationship to one another. In the environment, we are living in relationship to one another and to the natural world that envelops us. Monsignor launched our series of Lenten reflections by reading from the beginning of John, which tells of the creation of the world originating from the Word, who is the Son of God. Because of the Father's abundant love for the Son, the people came to know the Father through the Son, and we were invited to become children of God. This abundant, overflowing love of the Son by the Father and of the Father by the Son is the Holy Spirit. And so we've established early on that God and creation are all about relationships. The relationship of the three persons of the Holy Trinity with one another and the relationship of the Trinity with people and with creation itself. Pope Francis again says in section 240 that the world created according to the divine model is a web of relationships. The book of Genesis, which Father Fields talked about last week, also describes creation, twice actually. And in particular, the relationship between God and the first humans. Before the fall, the relationship between living beings was benign, unless you were a plant, I suppose, because in the creation story, all the animals and first humans were vegetarians. God gave Adam, the first man, the authority to name animals, and so giving a certain power over those creatures. Professor Hibbs, in his talk a couple of weeks ago, spoke about Jesus' calming the storm, which demonstrates that Jesus had a power over nature that only God could have. That's why people couldn't speak the name of God, because it would imply a certain power over God that humans just don't have. And so there's kind of a hierarchy of relationships established. And although it might be described as one of power and authority, it might as well be described as one of love and responsibility. In other words, in our relationship with creation, we owe our fellow human beings and our natural environment love and responsibility to care for them. Of the plants and trees, God created the tree of life and the forbidden tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But as we know, Adam and his mate Eve disobeyed God by eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and that first sin created the rupture in a relationship between God and humans. And indeed, all of creation was so affected. Animals now sought other animals for food, thus giving rise to the food chain which seems a little unfair since it was people that created the problem. Over salvation history, we see humans struggling to control or at least deal with the forces of nature, the great flood, the plagues in Egypt, the lack of food and water in the Sinai, and those inconvenient peoples who inhabited the promised land. God created a covenant with Abraham, but the Israelites had a fickle heart and they constantly wavered in their commitment back. Their relationship with God was rocky at best, but God kept God's side of the bargain. 
And so it went until Jesus. God then did the most amazing thing. God humbled his very self and became human. God became like us, made of the stuff of exploded stars, of protons and neutrons and electrons, and of cells and bones and blood and organs and nervous system and brain, and for some reason, an appendix. God put himself on a planet, the third from an average-sized star in an average-sized galaxy among some 200 trillion billion stars in the universe, which is a lot of stars. And most people don't even look at them, and we'll get back to that. And so on that pretty blue planet, God plunked God's very self down in a backwater and occupied outpost of a mighty empire where the locals hotly disputed arcane religious matters with one another. God did that because God cared about our relationship so much that God decided to walk among us. And when he did that, we did what anybody in the universe would do if God, out of God's infinite love for them, became one of them. We killed him. God let Jesus die, because if that's what it took, God was willing to do that for us, to die on a tree, on the tree of life, one of the very first living things God created. But not before Jesus began to usher in the reign of God, in which Jesus shows us the Father and offers to put us in right relationship with the Father and promises that the full realization of the reign of God is at hand, a reign in which all creation is transfigured in the presence of God, all things made new in the loving presence of a Father who won't even let our ingratitude spoil the party, a heavenly banquet in which all people and creation are transformed. Quinoa will taste amazing, and the wolf shall be a guest of the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat. Woody Allen once joked that the lion may lay down, lie down with the lamb, but the lamb won't get much sleep. Well, the reign of God will fix that. And meanwhile, we human beings work as God's partners, helping God to usher in the reign of God by caring for our fellow human beings especially those most vulnerable, ministering to the sick, housing the refugee, comforting those who are mourning, feeding those who are hungry, taking only what we need and sharing the rest with others, being solicitous to animals and being good stewards of the water and of the air and of food. And when Jesus comes, he will say, Amen, Whatever you did for one of these least brothers of mine, you did for me. I mean, that's what we hope he will say, right? That we've built our relationships with God and with God's people and with our environment right up to the time to enter the reign of God. But when we look around, we see that our society has not quite met the mark in our relationships with God, with our neighbor, and with our environment, and hence we have Laudato Si. It's Lent, 
a time when we reflect on our shortcomings and pray that we may experience conversion. Conversion, as you know, is a change of mind and heart, and it's most effectively done, in my opinion, through our relationships. So here are a few humble suggestions. Number one, looking up and reflecting. When I was a college student in Burlington, Vermont, more years ago than I would like to admit, I frequently headed to the movies on my own. And one winter sub-zero night, I trudged along the road to the movies, and my head was down, and my, I was lost in thought. And at some point, though, something caused me to stop and look up. And in the sky, I saw something that I have not seen, had not seen before and have not seen since. The heavens were absolutely ablaze. Awesome flames flared across the sky as if a rushing wall of fire. I was transfixed. If medieval forebears had seen it, they would have regarded it as some kind of omen of terrible times ahead. It was literally awesome and terrifying. What I was seeing, as you have probably guessed, was a manifestation, an unusual one, of the aurora borealis, the northern lights. And that was an unusual sight to behold, but I'm betting that many of you, if not all of you, have had your own experiences with nature, seeing the Milky Way, perhaps, in a dark skies part of the country, or looking up at a spectacularly majestic mountain height, or spying a bear or a wolf or a splendidly party-colored bird. At other times, if you're like me, the business of daily life makes, makes us blind to the environment. Have you ever driven by a bus stop and noticed everyone standing around what they're doing? They're all looking down at their cell phones. Everyone hunched over. Uh, we don't look up and see one another. We don't see anything around us. St. Bernard of Clairvaux, a 12th century Cistercian saint, you might think of the Trappists with their white robes and black scapulars, wrote that, quote, you shall find a fuller satisfaction in the woods than in books. The trees and the rocks will teach you that which you cannot hear from masters. Do not our mountains drop sweetness? The hills flow with milk and honey, and the valleys stand thick with corn. St. Bernard's point is not to indulge in nature viewing for the sake of nature. It wouldn't have occurred, him, occurred to him to do so. Rather, Bernard illustrates the ultimate reason for the relationship between society, in this case monks, and nature is to provide the kind of solitude and peace that gave his mind freedom to contemplate God in his revelation. Nature, in other words, should lead us to God. In a beautiful recent book of reflections titled Northern Lights, some Cistercian nuns on an island off central Norway share their thoughts and observations over the course of a year. They illustrate over and over again what St. Bernard is saying in the passage I just read. And allow me to read to you this uh, extended excerpt from a chapter written by Sister Maria Raphael Bartlett as an illustration. 
The skies here are constantly changing from moment to moment, a forbidding gray or a luminous pastel blue, ragged clouds torn by wind, billowing rounded clouds rising like smoke behind the mountains across the fjord. On an island, we often experience what seem to be several seasons in a single day. My own inner life can be just like that, and it reassures me to see those fluctuations reflected in nature. Last winter, I became fascinated with the shape of bare trees, noticing the bold, upward-reaching geometry of the branches as if the roots had been turned up to face the sky. They image for me a stark longing, a deep need that I direct towards the Lord and that I am aware of when all foliage and fruit is stripped away. To be aware of this aching need is to know oneself awake, even if only for an interlude. I find the sight of the naked, beseeching winter trees an echo of my own nature, companions for a desert journey. Sister Bartlett's reflection is just what St. Bernard is talking about, I believe. The environment, however beautiful and stark, directs her attention to God. Two, looking inward in conversion. Jesus died on a cross, on wood, hewn and shaped from a tree. Mosaic law regarded dying by being hanged on a tree as an, um, an abomination. For anyone who is hanged is a curse of God, says Deuteronomy. This then completes Jesus' utter humiliation, but it also restores the dignity of creation through his divinity. Jesus sacramentalizes the environment through his death on the cross. On Good Friday, we hear, Behold the wood of the cross, on which hung the salvation of the world. Note in these words the invitation to look upon the material, the nature of the cross itself, not just the symbol or the meaning of the cross. When we go to venerate the cross on Good Friday, we, well, at least in pre-pandemic times, we would physically touch or kiss the wood. It connects us with creation and with Jesus's cross in a concrete way. And it connects us to the crosses we bear in our own lives. Again, in the book, Northern Lights, Sister Cheryl Francis Chen asks, when are we going through, when we are going through something difficult, do we pray for it to go away or do we ask to go deeper? Is God asking us to experience failure in this instance so we learn to depend on him and not on ourselves? Or is he asking us to experience a growth in faith? We can learn a lot about how closely we are following Jesus by observing our own reactions. To understand, then, how we deal with difficulties, we have to look inside ourselves to go further on our earthly pilgrimage, to come closer to God's heart. We need to keep looking for the next cross, the next challenge, the next difficulty, which will cause us to grow and bear good fruit in the end. The cross, cut, quiddled, shaped, smooth, 
becomes, dare I say, a beautiful, transformed thing of nature. And on it we hang our own sufferings and our own little deaths, joining with those of Christ, and so to be resurrected with him. In other words, we are transformed by the cross. It is through the cross that our relationships, fractured in the creation story, are restored. We are in relationship again with a natural world that has been transformed by Christ through the Eucharist, which subsumes all the world in Christ's once and for all time sacrifice on the cross. The Eucharist, anticipating the reign of God, transfigures the cross, transfigures us and transfigures the environment we live in, divinizing all by virtue of God's becoming one of us in body and blood and dying on a tree. In this way, if we are but attentive to the presence of God working in us and through us and in our environment, we allow true conversion to take place in us by our glimpsing the transfiguration we hope for in the reign of God. Three, looking out and transforming our relationships. As we look out at our relationships with God, with one another, and with the wider environment, we are called to go further. God's plan asks us to participate in the project of furthering the reign of God. That means going beyond reflection and conversion to taking action. To transform our relationships with God, with the people of God, and with the environment that envelops us. For suggestions on how we might do this, I turn once again to our Cistercian brothers and sisters. As with their attitudes towards nature, the Cistercians sought an austere aesthetic in their architectural and environmental design, characterized by an astringent simplicity and lacking in ornamentation in order to keep the minds of monks and nuns focused on God. These monks and nuns strip their lives down to only what they need, everything else they share communally. Extraneous belongings are albatrosses around the necks of the penitent. In extreme cases, things become idols that replace God in our lives. We too would do well to eschew unnecessary possessions and to simplify our lives. As Pope Francis points out, conspicuous and pointless consumption poisons our relationship with Christ and damages the environment. Simply put, less is more. For where your treasure is, there also will your heart be. Stripping away all that is unnecessary opens our heart to be more receptive to hearing God's voice, to taking up our cross, and to conversion. With the exigencies of the climate and of damage to the environment apparent, didn't we just hear this week of the collapse of the massive East Antarctic uh, ice shelf, all this may still leave us feeling unsatisfied. The Pope reminds us that we can participate in community action as a society in relationship to one another. We can affect greater change. The Holy Father also urges us that in addressing environmental issues, we must also balance 
the needs of the poor. However we address these global challenges, it must begin, I think, with our journeys to conversion. As we continue our environmental pilgrimage, I recommend then looking up to see and reflect on the presence of God and God's creation, looking inward to reflect on the environment in the context of the cross and our own failings and challenges on the road to conversion, and looking out to act in light of our reflection and conversion to transform our relationships with God, with others, and with the environment, to live more simply, to care for others, to be grateful for what we have, to take small steps to making the environment better, and to work communally with love for a more just society for the poor and with solicitude to nature. With wondrous deliverance, you answer us, O God, our Savior. You are the hope of all the earth.